0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, We're going to get started. Uh, It's a nice, intimate crowd on a Wednesday evening here at the Hirshhorn, and we're thrilled that you could come join us tonight. Um, I'm Olga Vies, I'm the director of the Hirshhorn, and tonight we are hosting In Conversation with Art Angel. And this is the second event in our ongoing series of discussions that explore issues central to contemporary art. And tonight I'm pleased to welcome James Lingwood, who is the co-director of Art Angel. And James will be in conversation this evening with Anne Elgood, who's our associate curator here um, at the Hirshhorn. And they're gonna focus tonight on the role of place in artistic practice, um, taking art out of conventional spaces like galleries and museums and moving the artists and the audience experience closer together. Based in London, Art Angel is um, really such a phenomenally uh, important and special uh, institution because of the way that it works with artists um, and partners with artists in facilitating the production and the creation of new work. Um, and it truly is an art angel, I think, which inspires um, its name as an organization um, in terms of the way that it supports artists um, to find resources to make, I think, very ambitious works and working artistically with artists to enable them to grow and thrive and stretch their work, often into new media, or presenting their works in alternative contexts. As Art Angel's co-director and architect, and an accomplished and inspired curator in his own right, James Lingwood um, is beloved and respected by so many for his great vision, but also because of his pioneering work with artists. Um, James and Art Angel are responsible uh, for really some really wonderful projects that you're going to hear about tonight, um, including the very first um, project with uh, Matthew Barney, the first Master film, um, grew from a partnership with Art Angel early on, um, and it led to really that, the first in that important cycle of Matthew Barney's work. Projects that Art Angel has done has ranged from choral performances to film, and include Francis Alice's Seven Walks series, which is currently, part of it is currently on view here in our new black box space for new media, which you might have seen as you came in this evening. Um, Ann Elgood, who's our associate curator here, has just completed her first year at the Hirshhorn, and uh, she's really already had quite a significant hand in shaping and developing our contemporary program here. And as you pass through the lobby this evening, you might have gotten a glimpse of an upcoming project that is in process, um, our directions project with Jim Lambie that will open next Friday. Um, on May 12th, and this is um, one of Anne's first exhibitions um, here at the Hirshhorn, um, part of the Direction series. And so we invite you to join us uh, Friday night on the 12th from 8 to 11, we're gonna have um, an Art After Hours um, evening with Jim Lambie, and he is going to be DJing that night in the opening, and there'll be some wonderful, um, I think, moments to experience his art um, in a, a large communal setting. Anne is also working on a project that will open this fall called The Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas, Recent Sculpture, uh, which we're very excited about, um, that will open in October. Um, So we invite you to sort of keep your eye on that um, coming in the fall. So I'm going to turn it over now to our two very talented curators, Anne Elgood and James Lingwood. Thank you.
1: Well, first, I just want to say thank you to James Lingwood for agreeing to be here, and it's really an honor to have you. And I'm going to um, just explain the format for the evening, which, as you might tell from the way we're just casually sitting here, is meant to be sort of casual, Um, and then say a few things about Art Angel and and why I wanted James to come and speak with us, Um, and then we'll start looking at at art. The format will be that we've selected four uh, artist projects that Art Angel has commissioned to focus on tonight, and they'll include Rachel Whiteread, Gregor Schneider, uh, Jeremy Deller, and Francis Alice. And then we have a couple of backups. If we have time, we'll look also at a project by Kutlug Ataman and a project by Michael Landy. And... um, James will get up and show images and sort of walk you through a little bit of the narrative of how these projects evolved and what the artworks are. And then I will post some questions to him, but we also want you to interject at any point, really. So once you can, inter- you can interrupt James, you can interrupt me, um, certainly at the point where I start asking him questions, please feel free to just shout out a question or, or raise your hand and I'll, I'll call on you. So that it really becomes more of a dialogue. And with a nice small crowd tonight, I almost feel like making everyone move forward. Um, but please feel free to do that and I'll, I'll, I'll encourage you if you're not asking questions. <laughs> so we really want it to be a bit of a back and forth. Um, and we can also leave time at the end if, if there is any time. So we'll try to look at each project for about 15 minutes and see how it goes. So Olga already mentioned a few really important things about Art Angel and why we felt that in the context of this In Conversation series, which focuses on public art, Art Angel was the perfect Um, organization to focus our attention on because of the way that they work with artists and I think as institutional curators in a way I look to James and the projects that he does with a slight bit of envy because um, with each project it's very malleable and there's a sense of adaptability that enters into everything that they do so that if they're interested in an artist and want to work with them the project can really grow and develop over time and that may be a year or that may take five or six years before the project is realized so there's a way, there's a more organic process which doesn't include a lot of deadlines the project is sort of done when it's done and when the artist and and the organization get to the point where they feel like it's ready to be presented and I think that you'll see probably in some of James's uh, remarks and we'll get into this a little bit how things really grow and develop and change and there's room and space there for those changes to happen which can be very rare when you're working with deadlines and and institutional pressures. Um, The other thing, of course, is the way that as commissions that happen uh, primarily in the public, not always explicitly, but they are very much site-specific projects. And so this question of place enters into every project in a very meaningful way. And I think for artists today, particularly artists working in the public realm that we've been talking about in this series. Of course, place is extremely um, important, an integral part of all those projects. So that will come up again and again. And I think that ultimately what you'll see in the projects that Art Angel has done is that really the artists are expanding the very definition of what a public artwork might be or what we might conceive of as public, even as a definition. So that's something that we'll get into as well. Um, So having said that... I think I'll turn it over to James, and we're going to first look at Rachel Whiteread's house.
2: Okay. um, Before I... Do you want to say more about Artangel? Yeah, just firstly, thank you both very much for your introductions. Um, It was very generous. Um, The one thing that we're not is an institution, really. I I like to think of Artangel as being um, almost like an organism, which, as you said, changes shape um, and profile depending on the kind of work we're involved in. We're not very big on definitions. Um, Words tend to get aimed um, at what we do. We have to do it ourselves, and and, and the word public art um, still attaches in some way to the kind of work we do, but we we tend to just think of these um, as being specific projects which, um, in a sense, are not trying to conform to any um, pre-existing notion of what they should be. Um, so rather than being, um, I, I guess the way that we're set up as an, as an organization, it's a, it's a small office in London, is um, uh, to try and maximize all of our resources and our energies um, outwards towards the project, so that towards the realization of the project into the world, not to try and sort of, as it were, suck it back in. To um, some, to make it conform in a way that somehow circumscribes its potential, um, you know, as you know, a specific project out there in the world. Um, the idea of, of place, as as um, both Olga and Anne have said, is is uh, is absolutely fundamental to what we're interested in, and um, in a way, that still is a kind of counter tradition to the dominant tradition of. Of, uh, of Western art of the last uh, centuries, actually. Um, and, you know, the dominant mode as uh, exemplified by, you know, the museums I've been going around today in Washington is one of a certain placelessness of art which is predicated and based on an idea of its mobility, that it can move from one place to another, even from one culture to another. Um, and so in a way... Uh, I mean, I guess the word that I'm quite fond of, of, of throwing out in these situations is the idea of entanglement. And I put that in contrast to the word autonomy. So autonomy is what, you know, the high modernist idea of Clement Greenberg and whatever is something which just stands on its own without reference to anything outside of it. And by contrast, I think the works that... Some of the works which we've produced most successfully have become very entangled, with particular place or particular context almost so you can't necessarily separate the work itself from the world in which it is made Um, in a sense its it's material is both what the artist has brought to the place and what the place has brought to the artist Um, maybe we could have the lights down please (coughs) these lights down too Can we have the lights down? I'm not sure he can hear me. Can we have the lights down?
1: He's, he's working on it.
2: Thanks. So, in a way, it's not always really clear, um, particularly when a project that, that, that uh, an artist brings to us actually um, begins. Um, this is a, a photograph um, of a street in East London, Grove Road, in the late 19th century. Um, part of um, uh, um, the East End of London has had a reputation of being the sort of the tough sort of working class enclave um, through most of the 20th century. But actually, when it was built, it was, um, you know, uh, it was part of um, a thriving, uh, a thriving sort of um, economy moving out from the city of London. Um, anyway, by the time that uh, we came across um, Grove Road, we being Rachel white and uh, Art Angel, in the early 1990s, it had fallen on very hard times. Um, this was just a row of terraced houses, many of which um, had been um, abandoned. Um, and indeed, by the time that uh, we started seriously to think about how we might realise the proposal that White-Reed had brought to me which was very simply to make the cast of a house um, this was um, this was the house in Road that we, Grove Road that we uh, lighted upon it's quite interesting going to the National Gallery today and seeing um, the sculpture Ghost uh, sitting there in the east wing um, and just look such a classic, almost Egyptian kind of sculpture, but that was the work that I had seen in the East End in a tiny gallery about two years beforehand, and which really was the the kind of basis on which um, the idea of moving from the cast of a room, which is what Ghost is, to the cast of a whole house in situ, how that it emerged. Um, so here we are again with the... the um, we secured permission from the local council, not without huge difficulties, um, with the idea of um, making a temporary memorial. Um, and then we uh, had to uh, work out a technique whereby we could actually make the, um, the cast from the mould of the house, working from the inside of the house outwards. Um, and after two months of, um, of basically spraying concrete onto the existing interior walls and then leaving time for it to cure we gradually took the house away from the mould the roof, then the bricks, the doors, the features and cetera, to reveal um, the imprint, the cast of the house and there it is um, The kind of strange thing about talking about this project now um, in the relative quiet of Washington is it's very hard to communicate just um, what a huge amount of noise, such a quiet-looking, really mute, almost blind sculpture created in London. But it was probably the most contentious piece of art uh, realised in London over the last 50 years or so. Uh, it inflamed opinion um, to a level which which moved from the streets itself all the way to the House of Commons, where um, you know, uh, politicians of different persuasions all had their uh, say as well. Um, but of course, as I said, the one thing about this sculpture was that it's mute. It didn't really say anything specific to anybody. It was just a kind of receptacle into which people could pour into which people could, could pour their prejudices uh, their memories their emotions um, so I'm just going to um, take you on a little tour around the, the four sides of the house and, and, and um, make a couple of other observations, the first is that you know, so, say unlike ghost which exists in a place of its own in a museum um, A house existed in relation to to several other different kinds of architecture. Um, You see on on the left there, there, um, to the the far left, there's some 1950s housing blocks. And then just beyond that, you'll see almost like the double of the house, similar kinds of 19th century terraced houses. Um, From from the back of the sculpture... um, you could actually see how small it was. I think, although people described it as being a large monument, in actual fact, I thought it was kind of quite small and vulnerable. Um, this is the kind of, this is the amount of space in which most people live most of their time. So there's kind of real sense of compression about it. But anyway, it was contrasted with these different um, forms of uh, housing, say, so particularly at the back there, the skyscraper, uh, sorry, the high rise block, which Uh, was symptomatic of the attempts to um, relocate um, social housing from the terraces, which were then considered slums and uh, to be dangerous and unhealthy, into these new kind of um, terraces in the sky. And from north to south, you, you could see, you would read how somehow in relation to This this new um, business centre called um, Canary Wharf which had been constructed in the late 80s and uh, had come to symbolise the um, effects that Thatcherism um, and a new kind of global economy had wrought on the the culture of the East End of London. So in a way, House tapped into all of these different kinds of possible readings without uh, privileging one. Here's another one. Um, to, the, to the right of house you, looked at, you would see it in relation to a church in fact there were three churches of different kinds across the road and, um, and I think several commentators said that it somehow suggested the way that the idea of home or the idea of domesticity had, had, um, had displaced um, religion in Britain as an organising agent of, of social stability um, Uh, There's some quality British press for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And actually, one one sign of um, a sculpture, I mean, it's it's very, very rare of of, of an artwork crossing the threshold from being um, something contained within our own culture, the kind of culture that we're all interested in, into a much broader culture is when it starts to be um, the subject of cartoons. And, and, and House was very widely cartooned um, in this period, um, whilst it was being debated um, you know, in, in every, every possible um, part of, 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 of London culture, from, from newspapers to, to television and radio, as I said, to sort of local and national politicians. Um, It was always intended to be a temporary project. Uh, We felt that, firstly, we would never have got permission um, to have used the house and just left um, a monument there in perpetuity. Um, But as the debate sort of uh, raged on, there uh, was quite a lot of pressure to extend its life. And, in fact, we managed to extend its life for another couple of months or so. But it was um, then um, destroyed to the glee of the local councillors who'd been um, attritional since the moment it opened Um, you know it took uh, about three months to build and a day to destroy and and it's still there you can't see it anymore but it's still there to everyone who visited or experienced the work Somehow, the place is charged by the presence of the sculpture. And I think one of the things that I feel quite strongly um, when people talk about the way that these projects are temporary, is that a problem, whatever, is that you have to trust in memory. Um, and that I think the memories of most of the people who experience this work were, were very strong and still sort of attach themselves to the place, even if the sculpture is not visible anymore. So shall I, I'll leave it at that for) Great.
1: Um I think my first question is if you could go into some more specifics about what the controversies were surrounding it, what were the criticisms of the piece and and conversely, what were the things that people felt really worked about it and was there a split there in terms of in your Estimation in terms of the general public's reaction to the work versus a more, an art-viewing public?
2: No, it was much more complex than that, and that was what made it really interesting. Um, I should wind the, um, wind the reel back a bit. and Just the reference to, to, to um, many people... There was a huge controversy in, in London in the early 1970s when the Tate Gallery uh, bought um, one of Carl Andre's brick pieces... Um, equivalent, I can't remember which equivalent, but one of these simple um, recta- rectangles of bricks and, um, you know, for I don't know what, £50,000 there was a huge scandal about the amount of public money being spent on on a pile of bricks and, and equally that it, that it so clearly was devoid of any artistic merit to, to almost all uh, the broader public and the newspapers would do things like um, invite, um, you know, pay a local brick company to, to go and create their version of Carl Andre's bricks on the, <laughs> on, the, um, on the steps of the Tate and, you know, various strategies of this kind. Now, So what happened um, when House, 20 years later, um, arrived? And we'd been very quiet in, in our preparations. I mean, it, we, we did not have any pre-publicity about the project at all because we kind of realised it was quite vulnerable whilst it was actually being made. So, so when it was unveiled, or, or um, was there, um, the newspaper... I mean, there are two things. I mean, the, 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 the cultural critics, the reviewers, were, broadly speaking, very sympathetic, and some of them immediately recognised the importance of the piece. But um, the, the popular press, and the television and whatever... Thought they had another Carl Andre-like um, controversy, which they could continue to, you know, to um, <coughs> to stoke up, really. Um, but what they discovered was that, you know, so they dusted down their old battle plans of, you know, sort of cultural battles of, as you said, um, the general public against the art world elite or um, the connoscenti against, you know, people who actually had more sense, you know. And what what happened was that the contours of the controversy, as it were, completely eluded the kind of maps that they tried to design for it. So so they kept on trying to say, well, okay, it's the local people who dislike it and, you know, the people from um, wealthier parts of London who are more sympathetic, but it was simply much more complicated than that. So... So, whenever you could identify a block of opinion it was people on the street, people in the local community, people in the broader community, you would find that there were differences within, within that community, not between one community and another, and that made it much more, much too complicated for the press to really stereotype and so, in that sense, I think it was a, a cultural watershed in London because um, it persuaded people that projects which Actually, the form of this work is relatively conventional, but nonetheless it was considered to be an extremely radical work at its time. Um, the, the, the projects like this had the capacity to generate responses amongst much, to a much broader constituency of people rather than you know, a particular elite.
1: Was it in part really... I know that when you started working with Rachel, the piece could have happened anywhere in the city. It was more logistical... Question of finding the right site. So, when it ended up on Grove Road, did that particular neighborhood, that street, even generate some of the controversy around it? Well,
2: I think whichever street, so we're getting some strange feedback. Um, whichever street it would have been located in, it would have happened. It would have would have would have um, so generated wasn't that I mean, what, actual community. What, well, what happened was that um, we had to secure permission from the local council. who who was headed up by a councillor who, although he was a a liberal democrat, a liberal, um, was actually also a proto-fascist. And um, (laughs) he... he, um, I mean, seriously, he was a a demagogue. And he was absolutely enraged that we managed to secure permission over his head that there were... I mean, there was a small local group of seven... Of whom four voted to give Archangel permission to to make the sculpture for three months. Three voted against. He was away when this vote went through, <laughs> um, and when he came back, he you know he made it his. He I think he felt there was an opportunity for him to generate um, you know a sort of local firestorm, which would benefit him politically. You know, he had a very kind of a small um, but nasty uh, vision of what the sculpt- sculpture could do for him. Um, but there's a, maybe a broader point, which is when you're working in, outside of the more protected zone of a museum or a gallery, that these kinds of projects are, um, are, um, uh, are in a much more volatile situation. Uh, and there are many things that you cannot... Predict and you cannot control, and these contingencies are what I think makes it potentially such a kind of charged and interesting way of working. Um, There were political contingencies, contingencies of what else was happening in that particular part of East London at that particular time, which we hadn't, you know, you could not have designed um, some of these kind of relationships. But but the sculpture somehow or an interesting project of this kind of creates a kind of magnetic field around it, which sort of then has all of these different issues um, flying around.
1: Do you think that with the amount of publicity it got, that that has had an impact on public art in general in London, that it sort of set a stage in some ways to allow to, push it, to, to allow Art Angel to push it, but even other organisations, that people were part of the conversation now, that the public was engaged
2: Well, I think the tendency is, uh, generally speaking, um, for for projects of a particular kind of visibility like this, it's not easy. The tendency is still for people to find reasons to say no. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless, uh, I mean... I mean, most most, um, more permanent public uh, sculpture in London, there are very few uh, notable examples... Most of it is still relatively anonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's a wonderful quote by the Austrian writer Robert Musil, who said that, um, uh, I'll paraphrase, but he said, attention slips away from sculpture like water off a duck's back. <laughs> and it's true that most sculpture in the public realm exists because it's on the, thres- <clears throat> on the threshold of invisibility. Um, and uh, something like White Reed's House clearly was not. Uh, um, and I mean were we to propose um, a follow up to White House now for sure we would probably secure permission just because of her status mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the notoriety of that piece and her status as an artist but you know, if we were proposing um, something where there was, it wasn't a kind of set of references as there wasn't for House when we proposed it would still be difficult mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Question?
2: I think there were a few local cafe owners who were very happy about it, Um, but but it, I mean, Christo. I mean, there is a designed economy around the whole operation. It's constructed uh, and it's actually sold um, as an economic uh, stimulus um, to its particular. I mean, I guess you're referring to the the, the New York, the New York thing. No, this (laughs) this wasn't. I mean, firstly, uh, I mean our our um, PR strategy was entirely totally the opposite of Christo's in a sense it was one of of silence and just allowing this thing to happen (laughs) whereas with Christo I guess people were booking up to come to New York several months in advance
1: well they waited 20 years was it or something like that are there other questions in the audience before we move on to the next project okay oh Robert
2: if I don't know this hypothetical if a collector or Saatchi said, I want to buy this piece, why could the sculpture die for Actually he did. <laughs> Not surprisingly, um uh Saatchi was one of, I think, two or three people who made inquiries. Um it was a conceptual decision that um this work would have um a limited life. Sort of cherry Boston thing that would be about transients? Yes. Um, and that it would remain um, a memory. I, I think there was also a practical consideration that, that even after, you know, it's, it, after it's three months there, and you will have noticed, it had begun to get quite graffitied, to get sort of marked up in, in a lot of ways. And it was sort of gradually losing its otherness there was this kind of real sense that it was like a ghost in its situation and the more it became graffitied and marked up the more it was becoming a bit like a piece of urban archaeology anyway now if it had been very sensitively sort of uprooted and placed let's say in the Tate or whatever I think it would have been okay but I'm not sure it would have performed as a sculpture in quite the same way as um, ghosts do or, or the bookcases or whatever there um, you know it was it was much rougher as a as a piece and um, well who knows because we, we, we were never able to judge that but i think really the answer to the question it was um, uh, the conceptualizing of the work by rachel uh, with with art angel was that it would you know have a, a limited life what money is behind the plinth what money is behind yeah. the plinth that's a mixture of um, local government money um, from the London, the mayor of London and private money. When Rachel White re- did her cast of the plinth, right. um, that was actually primarily paid for by, by, by the sale of maquettes right. of the plinth right. before.
0: And all the other objects there, did they wind up in someone's collection? Or?
2: Um, all the other... From the I should way. explain. There's a, in Trafalgar Square in London, there are, there are four plinths in the four corners of the square. Three of them have um, Victorian statues um, of, of generals or politicians. And one of them um, uh, never had a statue put on top of it. And several years ago, um, a small uh, group, of which I was a member, persuaded the local ca- the, the council that they should run a programme, a temporary projects on that plinth. Um, they go to different places. Um, or none. Um, depending on, on again how they can be moved. But I think the the, the present sculpture is by Mark Quinn, which is that's got which, which is one of these um, marble sculptor, sculptures of um, um, uh, a deformed uh, deformed woman. Pregnant a deformed pregnant woman, thank you. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that exists in more than one edition, and I don't know where it's gone to, but I think it, it has been sold on. Should we move on?
1: Yeah. I'm supposed to be the timekeeper, and I'm doing a very poor job, so okay. you have to um, move on. Gregor Schneider.
2: Gregor Schneider. This is... I um, kind of wanted to talk about Schneider's piece because um, although... Uh, I mean, it's almost the polar opposite of... Um, of the White Reed work, in the sense that uh, White Reeds sculpture was pure. Um... Well, firstly, they were located in very, very similar kinds of uh, streets. Um, this is a street called Walden Street in East London, probably fifty minutes walk away from where where House was 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 made, um, and where White Reeds sculpture, in a way, was. Was it was actually a kind of contemporary equivalent of a, of a Victorian sculpture. Uh, and it was purely about exterior surface. You had no access to the interior at all. By contrast, Gregor Schneider's project called Die Familie Schneider um, was all purely interior. Uh, and I, what I will do is I'll just um, describe to you how you experienced the project. And... Um, It started off by uh, you coming to collect a key at a small office down the road, then walking up Walden Street. In fact, there would be two of you. Um, One of you would have a key to number 14 Walden Street and your companion would have a key to number 16 Walden Street. And you'd been instructed to um, go into the houses simultaneously, one per house, and to spend up to ten minutes in that house then to come out and then to exchange keys and go into the other house. So, when you walked into these houses, you just walked into what appeared to be a fairly um, (coughs) banal, uh, depressed staircase, A, a entrance hallway. And then you came into a small kitchen next door to be surprised by the fact that you'd assumed you were on your own. And you discovered that you were not alone, and that the um, there was a, there were there were people in the houses, people who resolutely refused to um, acknowledge your presence in any way. Uh, it was an immediate temptation to say hello or try and engage them in conversation, but you got nothing back. It was as if, as if they were in a parallel a parallel time zone, um, and you just Worked your way through the various rooms of this house, uh, fairly sparsely detailed. Um, Actually, one thing you were aware of was that the rooms were uncomfortably small. Um, Again, this was a Victorian terraced house. It was small anyway, but something that Schneider had done was to lower all of the ceilings and build into the walls to compress the space even more. But, But not so you could actually notice it, just so you could feel it. And then you would hear, you heard a sound upstairs. Um, You had a choice, actually, of going downstairs into a basement or upstairs onto the first floor, um, where there was a sound of water running. Very tentatively, most people would ease open. You had to open doors to every room, open the door and come into the bathroom and look round where you saw a figure of a naked, middle-aged man masturbating in the shower. Obviously most people didn't spend very long in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you came out, opened another door, into the bedroom. I should say there were no windows on the top floor at all, so both in the bathroom and in the bedroom, space, there was um, an increasing sense of of claustrophobia. Uh, there was a garbage bag on to the side of a bed which was covered with a very nasty, kind of cheap white carpet. And as you made your way around the bed, if you did, you noticed that there was a leg, so the legs or um, legs sticking out from under the bag. So it was, and it looked like, and you could, it went very close, you could see there was someone breathing under the bag. It was almost certainly. A small person, like a teenage son. You know, at this point, um, you know, if you were, uh, if your mind was in gear at all, you begin to try and construct what was going on between these different sort of um, atomized parts of a family, all one on their own in these different rooms, um, and thinking this this appeared to be um, the teenage son or daughter of the man upstairs and the woman washing dishes obsessively cleaning the woman was obsessively cleaning the man was obsessively doing something else whatever you went downstairs into the basement again there were a small configuration of very very uh, claustrophobic rooms this was almost like a uh, what we call a pantry which had nothing in it except this very um, sad um, configuration of um, things which may have been for a child's party or something like that. So all the time you had two different impulses. One was feeling repel- repulsed. It's kind of a basic desire to get out of this house. And the other one was to see how far you could go through. Um, I think one of, one of the things that Schneider is particularly interesting is, is um, this heightening of your own existential condition as you, you know, observe or participate so you, you, you um, walk through the rooms of his, of his work which also are in a way the rooms of his mind um, so after ten minutes you came out of the house huge sense of relief saw your friend Um, and swapped the keys. And probably didn't say very much. Some people obviously only spent a couple of minutes in the house. One or two people only got as far as the front hallway and came out again. Um, But anyway, most people were willing to go back, back into the second house where you encountered a very similar hallway. And as you worked your way through, you found that to a degree that was... Extremely troubling. Everything was the same. So the whole experience um, was doubled. The woman washing dishes looked to be exactly the same as the woman in the other room. I mean was someone playing tricks? Had they suddenly moved from one room in one house to another? Well, it appeared that way, but obviously it was impossible because you know your companion was having the same experience in the other house. Um, and this doubling continued all the way through. Um, You almost felt like you were a ghost kind of going through completely... You were watching yourself go through the second house. Um, There you are. A similar man again. And they were, of course, in fact, identical twins. So all of the performers in... Uh, and actually one, I think, amongst the many very diff- difficult um, tasks I've been given by <laughs> artists with Art Angel. Um, Gregor's proposal that he wanted um, middle-aged men, identical middle-aged men, to sort of masturbate in identical shower rooms was one of the most difficult. Anyway, we, we did find the Johnson twins. <laughs> Um, who were failed stand-up comedians and, um, after a job. And um, actually, they, they performed. I mean, it was an unbelievably uh, psychologically demanding uh, job for them to take on, but they did do it. And so there we are. It's, it's um, a, a completely doubled um, experience of, of what became known as Schneider's. Twin houses. Um, so, whilst um, Whitereed's project, you know, down the road ten years earlier, had on occasions, towards the end of its life, had you know, hundreds, if not sometimes thousands, of people sort of mobbing it and creating this sort of um, uh, this kind of crowd around the sculpture, Schneider's work could only ever be experienced by one person at a time, or, or two people in, in parallel. Um, so I think it's quite an interesting counterpoint when people talk about public art. Uh, well, this was about as intensely private uh, and as intense as an, ex- an experience, I think, as an artwork could be.
1: It's interesting that for all the differences, they, they do share some interesting links. Obviously, the house as the starting point of the work um, And thinking about just the topic of privacy comes into both of them. I mean, with with Rachel you imagine who did live there or the history of that place and the sort of sense of privacy emanating from it as an object. But also, Rachel's is more explicitly working with the language of the monument or the memorial. But I think it's perhaps interesting to think about Gregor's piece as a kind of memorial also because of the remove that you have as a viewer, the way that you're given access to this space, but then you're not allowed to interact with these people. They become ghost-like. You said that you felt ghost-like experiencing it, and that's a kind of sensibility that I think is common to a memorial. So that might be something... Did you ever think of it that way?
2: Uh, not specifically as a memorial, but I think both, both projects um, tapped into uh, this the idea of the uncanny Mm -hmm. or the... Yeah, sorry. How did the public get access? They booked. They They booked. They had to make appointments because, um, you know, to try and avoid some huge queue forming. Was there a big turnout? It was booked out within... It it was like a four-month run. It was booked out within about three weeks because word of mouth um, was was so strong. I'm sorry, just going back to that issue about the the uncanny, you know, Freud's theory of the um, um, unheimlich um, and the the idea of, um, you know, what is repressed Mm -hmm. um, in sort of everyday situations or objects always returning. Um, And I think... um, we don't quite know the degree of repression that Schneider was operating on but I I think that idea of the uncanny um, does link the two quite closely
1: and what what was the public and critical response to the Schneider piece
2: Um, actually I have to say that the the critical response was extraordinarily strong I mean strong in a a very engaged way that recognized that um, That this was a quite a lot of artists who somehow play with these kinds of situations, but Schneider's engagement was on a completely other register. Mm -hmm. Um, And
1: do you want to mention his the piece that he become known for prior to you working with him? Because um, I think it speaks to the sort of obsessive and immense detail to this artist.
2: I mean, he, he, his life work um, has, has been working for, I think now some 15 years, on his, his parents' house in um, a small provincial town in the Rhine called Reit, near München Gladbach. And um, it's called the Tutus House, which some of you may have seen was reassembled in the German pavilion in the Venice Biennale about. Four years ago? Yeah, five years ago. Um, and, you know, he just built rooms and more rooms into this house sort of obsessively over over 15 years. Um, the project we did with Schneider was sort of different in two ways. Actually, it was the first time he'd really um, stepped outside of his specifically German context mm-hmm. um, and somehow managed to quite quickly absorb the the um, vernacular details of that part of London to be able to replicate it in a very convincing way. Um, and also the first time he'd really um, had his, one of his, his rooms or his projects uh, inhabited by people other than the spectator, the viewer. Um, I, mean, I hesitate to use the word performers because I think actually what was so shocking to most people, was that it really did not feel like a performance at all. It just felt like people in the house which made you feel that you should not be there. Would you talk a little bit about how it was that you invited him to work with you? Did you have a preset idea or did it just really get through of the dialogue? Or uh, we really... Uh, we Very, very rarely is a preset idea except that... Um, you know, we're trying to offer an artist an opportunity to do something which really counts for them, which really is a significant um, development in their work and perhaps an opportunity to do something which other, um, which they might not, not be able to realise otherwise. Um, it was difficult. For, it is difficult sometimes to, for artists to be offered such an open brief. You know, Actually, it can be easier if you point an artist to a space and say what... What can you do with that? Um, and it can be very difficult for an artist whose work is so immersed in their own um, particular experience. I mean, in Schneider's case, both his own personal family life and his hometown. I mean, he'd never... In a sense, his work had really never really travelled beyond that before. Um, so it took a number of visits for him in London, uh, for him a number of visits to London by him. And he, he gradually... You know, elaborated this idea, which, which in a way is is um, has been latent in other works. but he's always been interested in the idea of doubling, um, and has created a number of double rooms before. So I guess he just extrapolated from that the idea of um, double houses with with double families.
1: I think we better move on to our last project because I realize it's 8:15.
2: Is it? Would you Would you want to do the last project or?
1: Yeah, I do. Okay.
2: (laughs) All right. Um, Well, this one you're more familiar with um, because part of it's showing next door. So I'll try and be very brief. But um, Francis Alice, um, as an artist who um, I think, as as um, as you mentioned, some of the some of the um, some of the projects um, that we. Initiate have a very very long gestation period, so I think I first approached Francis in um, the last century, um, <laughs> and uh, we only finally managed to do a project. He has a fantastic capacity to defer decision making. I have to say so. Um, he managed to do that for several years um, by making the project more and more complicated. Until and I'm delighted it was such a complex and multifaceted. And entangled project, which became Seven Walks. Um, you know, like Schneider and um, White Reed, it's a project made in London, on one level about London. And I think what we, we see a lot with the artists is that it, we're not inviting artists to somehow. It would be it would be absurd to be expecting artists to change their working approaches, their vocabularies, their their ideas. What we're sort of asking them is to try and find a way in which those can be applied and extended in a particularly interesting way in confrontation with aspects of you know, the city, if you like, the material of the city. Um, Alice, as you probably know, is a great walker, so he spent um, many weeks um, walking through London trying to, um, as it were, find the kind of keys of the particular little details or incidents that would spark him off. And one of the things he did a lot in the early time was to start to drum on the railings of Georgian London, uh, so, you know, the, the grander parts of London, which are, uh, he noticed that, uh, as, as people do notice things about your own city you don't see yourself, that railings in London are more or less ubiquitous compared with other, other cities, and they do denote a particular kind of relationship Between um, property and the public realm private property and the public realm so one of the films he made several films actually simply called Railings where he um, drummed on railings and buildings of of, um, different parts of London and I have to say actually the whole uh, of the project or large parts of the project were conceived fundamentally as being more musical so um, like the guards piece on one level, was was inspired not so much by a kind of minimal sculpture as it looks like, but more by um, the sort of music of or the, the contemporary modern music of Ligeti or Steve Reich or whatever. Um, so this was so there were seven seven projects which constituted the the, um, the final installation. This is one called Walking a Painting. Um, and this is Francis Alice himself holding a painting um, in the subway. And uh, every day this painting was, went on a walk of its own. So this is how it was displayed um, in the installation in London last fall. Um, and it was a painting of um, people who appeared to be commuters of one kind or other walking on the street. And in each night... It was Francis's painting? It was a painting by Francis. Um, it was always remained wrapped up, and each night um, a member of the public, someone like one of you, would um, sign up to take the painting home with you for the night. And we asked simply um, that we were provided with a photograph of what was done with the painting, and it went to all sorts of different places, and then was returned the following morning in time for the exhibition to open. So it was a kind of, um, I mean, The idea of kind of mobility or circulation of ideas and images is critical in in France's work, so this was just a kind of a symbol of that sort of interest. Um, He picked up on the fact that um, London is probably the most um, surveyed city in the world. Um, Surveillance cameras are, uh, well, they're prevalent in all of our cities, but um, they're absolutely ubiquitous in London. And coming, he lives in Mexico City. Um, and Mexico City doesn't have this ubiquitous presence of CCTV cameras because as he said they would simply be stolen Um, so but but, um, Londoners have accepted the fact that they are basically watched over for a considerable amount of their time and he originally wanted to make the guards film showing out there on ...filmed only by security cameras... ...as a kind of anonymous sort of filmmaking... ...and we tried to secure permission... ...we tried to work out whether we could get footage... ...from the hundreds of CCTV cameras around the city of London... ...to make the film... ...and discovered that although um, you have a right... ...if you have a right to ask a bank or an office... ...to to look at the material... ...if you think you've been filmed on it... ...you don't have a right to get a copy of it... ...so that proved to be impossible... So um, we, um, we kind of moved sideways uh, with the idea of making a film uh, with surveillance or security cameras inside a building. Um, and we picked up on the phenomenon of the urban fox. In London, um, in the last 20 years or so, foxes have come in from the country... And started to um, inhabit the city. I don't know. Does that happen in? You've got urban foxes in? Yes. No. In yes. Wolf Washington. Or Possums. Right. So, anyway, so it's. Um, we we could have, possibly, but. Um, they or- well, then you ha- you know you would have. Mm-hmm. It was complicated because. To have done that, we would then have had to have guided the route of the soldiers in the city of London. We didn't do that. so. No, we were just putting cameras in the place where
1: they would have necessarily gone if they were
2: put. Well, then, we, yeah, we would have needed to install literally hundreds, if not thousands, of cameras. So it got to the point of being almost totally impractical. But, um, so we, we, um, we decided to work um, with a fox. Um, and we secured permission for um, the Fox to spend a night wandering through the galleries of the National Portrait Gallery in London, being filmed by the surveillance cameras in the galleries. And these... these um, so, so the Fox just um, spent several hours um, inspecting uh, portraits of these kind of... the great and the good of uh, British history many of whom would, of course, spend their leisure time hunting foxes. Um, There he is with um, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, And that material was edited into two different films. One was... um, It was then replayed in the National Portrait Gallery as if it was um, a security or um, a CCTV bank. And this was installed there for uh, last fall... You would just be able to track the movements of the fox through the gallery. And then it was also shown in the other, in the other um, building where we presented the guards' film and the railings' film and some other material. And the guards, I, I don't really need to. Oh, oh, this is what happened last time. It sort of seems a resistance to move. So, not moving forward. so you have to take that one out. Um actually he was um no, he was um he was a professional. Um, <laughs> um, he he uh, we, we, we had to we hired the fox. Um, it's called called Bandit from a company that would <laughs> hire our animals for advertising shoots. he didn't the He I mean we uh, the, the more of no, he was. We were assured. Um, well, yeah, he was. He, he came with a handler, and he was he'd been well fed before, and we were assured that actually that he would all he would do would, would be to just furtively, you know, you know, be like a fox and just rush around sort of, um, along the walls and sort of curl up in quiet places, and and that's what that's what he did. Um, I mean, it, I have to say, it was a particular act of courage from the director of the National Portrait Gallery. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, he's one of my trustees. So, um, and could you speak to the concept of this uh, juxtaposition? Of the fox and the... Yes. Well... Well, I think, I mean... Phew, I would say that the initial idea was was effectively about about, the ubiquity of surveillance. Um, I think he was just then very interested in the fact that the fox is a kind of urban myth, that everyone talks about it, you occasionally see them. And, you know, that that to as it were, create a scenario which was um, sufficiently plausible that that people might believe that it had happened for real, that a fox could have actually somehow penetrated the security of the National Portrait Gallery. And I think what Francis was interested in doing was actually creating his own kind of little urban myth. It would be the story of the fox in the gallery at night. And the way that we played the um, publicity for that was to um, offer it as a news story first. So, in like The Times and The, the Guardian there was this, this image of the fox appearing at night, and then it was broadcast on, on television again as well. So um,
1: he's you know, kind of
2: interested in the idea of rumour yeah. as, as, as this sort of as something which, which people hear about and, you know, then circulates and maybe slightly changes form, or slightly changes the idea. So I guess the fox idea for him was to try and trying to create a sort of rumour in the city I think the other thing is that, in a way, um, I mean, I also interpret the fox as being is the fox is an interloper in this situation, a little bit like I think Francis himself thought of himself as being an interloper in the city. So, on one level, um, I think the fox is a kind of surrogate for Francis himself, as a sort of um, as a, as a sort of furtive presence in the city.
1: And he's used other animals as, as surrogates for himself uh, in Venice. I don't remember yeah, the he last one.
2: Oh, he used, he used um, a peacock to represent himself in the Venice Biennale.
1: So he would send the peacock to events where he was supposed to be for, to stand in for him. But also, wasn't he interested in the way that, um, looking more historically, the way that animals were kind of integrated into life in a way that has, has stopped... So that you might see, I know in the book there's a painting. I can't remember if it's, I can't remember who it is, in which animals were actually in the museum with people. Yeah,
2: I think that's a Sign Redam painting of an interior of a church, which just has a little dog right, in okay, the corner. But actually, um, uh, Francis Alice um, studied architecture, um, and he has a, um, spent some time in Italy. And his thesis was about the, um, the presence of animals within the kind of pre-Renaissance city. And then what happened um, in the rena- as, as cities, the structure and the management of cities was rationalized during the Renaissance, somehow animals became sort of beyond the pale. So animals were kind of um, relocated from being part of everyday life to being sort of outside the city walls. So, you know, he tracked that. I mean, I think there was maybe those Uccello paintings, was that? Mm-hmm. There was Uccello yeah, paintings was right, yeah. too. So he, he um, yeah, he does have a particular interest with with um, the relationship of animals to the city.
1: And I think your comment, part of what you just said is, is also quite important for Francis, is that all of his walks and all of... And, and in the case of the projects that he did with you, um, his walks have kind of moved in, in interesting ways beyond just him as a singular figure moving around the city, but in whatever form they're taking now, these walks are really a study, in some sense, of the modern city, a way to try to understand something that's um, quite uh, complicated. And in, in some sense, I think, as a, with an architectural background, he, he's really trying to almost map, in some ways, the way that the city... Has changed over time, and I think that has interesting links to previous practices, um, both in literature and, and art and theory. Uh, the city really as his as his site of yeah. all of his work.
2: Yeah, I mean, although I think it's it's interesting you mentioned literature because he's you know there are clear precedents in relation to certain artists from the sixties um, uh, and seventies doing sort of walking works, like Aconci mm-hmm. or whatever, but I tend to think of him much more as, a, as an artist in the line of Borges or Calvino yeah. or someone like that who's kind of creating sort of rather kind of fables if you like, or sort of short stories which somehow aren't really explained
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, And a lot is left
1: to chance A lot
2: is left to chance, a lot is left for people to, I mean, you know interpret them as they wish um, but if you like, just like Calvino wrote, you know, invisible you know, cities are just many, many different ways of describing Venice. I think, you know, that's what Alice has done in Mexico City, where most of his work is made. And actually, by spending, investing so much time m- making this project in London, you know, made something which had a similar kind of status. I mean, there's these sort of little fables. I mean, what is, what's really going on in the guards film? Why? No one's explaining that. Sorry.
0: He's, he's Belgian. Belgian. Was yeah. he born in the city or out in the country? Um,
2: he lived out in the country, actually. His, um, he uh, I think he was born in Antwerp, but I, I know that he spent much of his time living in. His father was, I think, a judge. He lived out of that. You look like that explains something to you—the fact that he's born in Antwerp.
0: Well, I just want to pilgrimage to Antwerp, but it's not. Yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a special city that's very much steeped
2: in, you know, back to the 100s, and it's yeah. Okay, so it seems to me And I think there's a relationship somewhere in his work to Marcel Broders, too, mm-hmm. and um, this this kind of it is a sort of critique, if you like, of um, of. Uh, of the experience of Empire um, which of course was extremely strong both in Belgium and in, uh, and in Britain and I think you can actually when one looks at the various components of the Seven Walks Together you realise in a rather kind of subtle and elliptical way he's really trying to get under the skin of, um, of as it were the long shadow that Empire has you know, cast over contemporary London has over Bel- does over Belgium today